that God loves you and he cannot stand to be apart from you. And so he did something about it. He sent his son Jesus to die for your sins. That simple gospel message has been forgotten. We get so tied up in religion and right and wrong and rules and all of that, but the gospel is so clear. God loves you and he wants you to live a life of love and a life of power. So for, the, for those of you who have been hurt by the church, those of you who have been hurt by denominations or religion or anything else we just want to say we're sorry and know that this that this church at least one church is going to proclaim the love of Jesus and lift that above every other thing the second reason you have to be aware of the church is this if you take the words of Jesus seriously if you look at the gospel specifically the Beatitudes that we're we'll looking at this morning if you take the gospel uh, you'll never be the same your life will be turned upside down You'll be called to a life that is dangerous and risky and painful. And I know that sounds really, what a great way to tell people to come back next week. But you'll be, you'll be included in all of that. If you really believe the gospel, you will be at cross purposes with the rest of the world. And God says, that's how I want you to make a difference in the world. And it's not by telling the world they're bad or by shaming them. It's by saying, listen, I have the good news of Jesus Christ and I want to deliver that to you with the love of the Savior. So this morning we want to look, finish up our series on what it means to be a dangerous church. In order to do that, I would invite you, if you will, to in a posture of receptivity, if you just extend your arms, recognizing that God is here. We don't have to invite him here, he's already here. And uh, you, invite, you invite him to come into your life and to the word of God to make a difference in your life. And so this is just a posture of receptivity and so I invite you to extend your hands. And Lord, here are your people. Father, some of us are longtime Christ followers that are fully devoted to the gospel. Others of us are here, Father, are here maybe for the first time. And maybe we haven't been to church for a long time and we're a little bit afraid of what the church might say or the condemning spirit it might have. Father, would you release them from that fear? And let them know that they're in a place where there is love and joy and the good news of God's love. And Father, for others who are here this morning that their lives are hurting, their hearts are broken, their marriages are suffering, for whatever reason, Lord, they're here, I pray that the healing power of Jesus would minister to them in a very potent way. And so, Lord, here we are, your people, with hands extended. May the word of God take root deep within our souls. And may we hear respond, believe, and act on the good news of God's gospel. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And all of God's people together said, Amen. Thank you very much.
Well, just by way of review, uh, we've been looking at uh, several aspects of what it means to be a dangerous church. Uh, We're all called to a life that is so beautiful, that is so bold, that is so risky, that yes, is so dangerous that it leads to either giving up and walking away or being transformed by the power of God. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about what it means to be a transformational church. And a transformational church is recognizing, again, in the first century, how the disciples lived their lives. And there were two disciples in particular, John and Peter, who had no education per se. They really had no leverage of any sort in their world, no money, uh, no uh, religious background. I mean, they had nothing, but they came to Christ. And when they were quizzed by the religious leaders because of the way that they lived their lives, uh, the religious leaders said, you know, these men who are uneducated, these men who have no leverage have turned the world upside down. It's Acts chapter 4. And these men were called, the word that uh, unschooled or uneducated comes from the Greek word idiotes or plural idiotai. And the point I made a couple weeks ago was that all of us are common, ordinary people. All of us, and I know you love to hear this when you go to church, we're all idiots when it comes to, you know, having real strong position in the world and taking charge and all of that. We are idiotai. And God says, those are the kind of people I want to use. People that don't take themselves too seriously. People that recognize that they have a need for God. And these people were transformed from ordinary into extraordinary. And I, for one, and I think you're the same way, I don't want to be ordinary especially as a Christ follower. I mean, the worst thing I could possibly be is an ordinary Christian. In fact, the Bible never allows that to be used. If you're a Christian, you're extraordinary and you're out to change the world. So we talked about how that we are turned from ordinary to extraordinary. And the reason that they recognized that Peter and John were different, here's what they said. These were, the, again, the religious leaders and the politicians. They said, we recognize that they have been with Jesus. We recognize that these men have been with Jesus. And so the question I asked you a few weeks ago was, what does it mean for you to be with Jesus? What does it mean for you to spend time with the Savior? Now, one of the uh, core values of our church is this. We believe that everyone who walks through the doors of our church are, first of all, not perfect. Read the sign out front. And we believe that people are welcome from all walks of life all lifestyles, all religious backgrounds, everything. And we don't condemn you. But here's what we do ask you to do. With the best of your ability, look into your own heart and ask this question. What does it mean for me today, you know, September, January 25th, 2015, what does it mean for me today to take one step closer to God? So wherever you are in your walk in Christ, maybe you're a fully devoted follower of Christ, maybe you're an atheist, but wherever you are in that walk, you've come here today for a reason, and I believe God ordained it that you would be here for a reason. What does it mean for me today to take one step closer to God? If you come with that heart, with that receptivity, God will do something, a work in your life. So the ordinary were transformed into extraordinary. We also talked about how the consumers were transformed into contributors. 
and how that the living were transformed into dead. That sounds kind of the opposite of what you would expect, the living transformed to dead. What that means is that Christ called us to die to ourselves and to be alive in him. And so what I said a few weeks ago is that in the year 2014, I feel that I made progress in my life because I died a little bit more. I died a little bit more to myself. I died a little bit more to materialism. I died a little bit more to what people think about me because I want to serve an audience of one. And then two weeks ago, we looked at the hidden side or the dangerous side of this kind of church. And the hidden side of the church is if you sign up for what the gospel, if you sign up for what Jesus talked about in the Beatitudes, you'll be setting yourself up for three things, pain, risk, and loss. You know, that, can you get a hallelujah? No, you don't want to say hallelujah. Pain, risk, and loss. And now the opposite of that is this. The opposite of a dangerous Christian or a risky Christian is someone who is normal, mediocre, uncomplicated. Well, the Bible never talks about that kind of life when you are a follower of Jesus Christ. It reminds me of the man who fit this description. There was a very cautious man who never laughed or played. He never risked, he never tried, he never sang or prayed. And when he one day passed away, his insurance was denied. For since he never really lived, they claimed he never died. Don't be that guy, right? Don't be that guy. We want to live a transformed life. Now today, we're going to look at what this dangerous living looks like. Now, I confess that I can be pretty hard on some of you cat lovers, right? I, I know, I'm very hard on you cat lovers. But today, you're getting a reprieve. Brief, but you will get a reprieve. Actually, I'm going to say something good about cats today. I don't know that I've ever done that before. I call it cat theology. And it comes from a story told by Dr. Milton H. Allen. It goes like this. One night, when I was 15 or 16, Allen writes... My dad yelled at me in the middle of the night, Milton, get up. Pulling on his clothes as he headed out the door, my dad yelled over the shoulder, the self's place is on fire. Mr. and Mrs. Self own the next farm east of us. I looked in their direction and I could see the sky lit up. Jerking on my boots as I walked, I jumped over the porch rail and headed up the road. I could see my dad in the firelight a few hundred yards ahead. I caught up to him just as he came into their yard. Mr. and Mrs. Self were standing watching their barn go up in flames. He had already let out the animals and we saw the scattered around the yard equipment he had saved from the fire but before the fire became too intense. In one of the few expressions of physical affection I ever saw from my father, he walked over and put his arm around the shoulders of our two neighbors. Then we all saw at about the same time a cat run into the brightly lit open barn doorway. We stood there in stunned disbelief, knowing that we could not rescue her and knowing that she would surely be dead in a few moments. Then, unbelievably, the cat ran out from the barn with a little kitten held in her mouth. She disappeared under the kitchen porch, 
then raced back into the barn again. Once again, she came running out with a kitten securely held in her mouth. Then she rescued a third. Amazing, he writes. I had almost forgotten that night uh, of the fire until a few years ago when we went to the San Diego Zoo. We had some of the grandkids with us, and they just about wore me out. I can say amen to that. When we went to the monkey enclosure, there were benches, so I said, I'd like to sit and watch the monkeys for a while. Many zoos have little cubicles for monkeys, more cells actually, but this enclosure was enormous. It must have been 70 or 80 feet high and a couple hundred feet across. It consisted of a metal fabric net stretched over enormous poles and barren tree trunks. Inside, there must have been 40 or 50 monkeys climbing around, seemingly enjoying their habitat. I got to watching and saw mother monkeys climbing around with their little baby monkeys hanging on. It was a comical sight. The mother monkeys would climb up and down, back and forth, at great speed, and the little baby monkeys hanging on for dear life. I guess monkeys have been hauling around their babies like that since the time began, but if one of those little guys had fallen, he would have been a goner. Then, sitting on the bench in San Diego, California, I remembered that cat rescuing her babies from the burning barn. That, my friend, is a picture of the kind of God we serve. You see, monkey theology says, if you can hang on, God will let you into heaven. Cat theology says, you are safe, and your trip to heaven is secure, because God hangs on to you. He carries you. He rescues you. Your future in eternity does not depend on whether you are able to hold on to him. He holds on to you. That is the essence of kingdom living. Living in the knowledge and the comfort and the danger that we cannot save ourselves. We're not like monkeys that just kind of hold on for dear life and hopefully God will take us to heaven with him. We can't rescue ourselves, but his grip on us, he says he'll never let us go. And the reason he will never let us go is because, as I mentioned earlier, the gospel message says simply, he loves you so much, he can't stand being apart from you. And so he sent his son Jesus to die for your sins. Kingdom living is living in that knowledge and that place of God's grace. It is recognizing that he has a firm grasp on your life and my life. It's what Max Lucado calls the sweet spot, where Jesus is Lord and we have, been, we have given our entire lives, body, soul, and spirit, to his control. Now, back when um, the beginning days of our church, we were meeting in a strip mall a couple of miles from here. And uh, when Sherry and I first moved to Arizona in the summer of 2000, um, I got together with another, a part-time pastor that was with us then, Brad Kindle, and we wrote out a vision statement for our church and nine core values. And some of the core values are what you'd expect. We believe the Bible is the word of God and we have a high value of scripture. We believe that every person can come to know Christ in a personal, intimate way. All of the things that you would expect, core values. But one core value that we put in our list that we couldn't find in any other church's list is this. A commitment to kingdom living. Let me read you what that commitment is. And this was for Hope Covenant Church. Still is. 
We believe that God is calling us to be a kingdom church as described in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 1 to 12. This includes coming to Jesus as broken sinners in need of God's amazing grace. It means being transparent, honest, authentic people who come to the Savior just as we are. It means being accepting and loving and grace-giving to those who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness. It means living our lives in total submission to our King, Jesus Christ. That kind of church, beware. That kind of church will make a difference in our world. That kind of church will impact lives for Christ because it's not about religion and lists. It's about a relationship with God and sharing that relationship with others through the gift of love. This morning, I want to explore a little bit of what, what that kingdom living is about and what it makes it so dangerous. We're going to be using as our text this morning a very familiar passage uh, from the Beatitudes. We won't look at the whole uh, Beatitude, but we'll look at the first three verses, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Now, if you have your Bibles, please turn there. If you have your uh, smartphones, your iPhones, your iPads, please feel free to turn to any of those instruments, uh, to Matthew 5. And at this point in the service, I always like to say to you, what? Read your Bibles. It's better than Shakespeare. It's better than Chaucer. It's better than uh, Samuel Clemens. It's better than all those guys because it has the ability to transform your life. Read your Bible. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, and we're going to find the amazing truth of kingdom living in this passage. This is the word of God for the people of God. Hear this word. Now, when he saw the crowds, Jesus, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the overarching truth in this passage of Scripture is that God holds on to you, and he never lets go. Is that God wants to give you his amazing grace and fill your life with purpose that is so real and so alive that you'll never, ever understand how you lived without him. Now, what's amazing about this passage in the Beatitudes is that when Jesus speaks, everything is turned upside down. Everything is turned upside down. Uh, the first shall be the last, and the last shall be the first. That seems to work everywhere in life except at potlucks, right? Uh, and, and then he says that the rich are the poor, and the poor are the rich. Now, some of you are saying, okay, I've been poor, and so then I'm rich, but what I'd really like to try is being rich and then see how that poor thing works out. Okay, so we all have that in mind. And then he says, the weak are strong, and the strong are weak. And cats are better theologians than monkeys. In other words, everything is upside down. All of the values that the world holds are in counter purpose to the things of God. All of the things that the world says really matters are things that don't matter as much as kingdom living. And then Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, what does that actually mean? Well, it means 
Happy are the broken. That's what it means. Happy are the broken. Now, when I read this, I'll be honest, I get a little bit testy, okay? I don't really like that. You know, some parts of the Bible you want to say, I'll just take that piece out and put that aside and I'll keep the rest of it, you know? And when you start doing that, you're left with like three pages. Uh, well, this is one of those pages, you know, I'm not sure I buy this because, and I'll confess this, I've spent my whole life trying not to be broken. I've spent my whole life trying to be adequate and competent and strong, whether a student, a football player, an engineer, a husband, a father, a pastor. I've always believed happy are the strong and happy are the successful and happy are the rich and the self-confident and the popular and the powerful. That's what the world says. And, you know, I've kind of bought into that. And what's dangerous is when you believe the opposite of that. What makes us dangerous as individuals and dangerous as a church is when we start living, kingdom living, and everything is upside down. And we start believing things in our culture aren't really all they're cracked up to be. And we start starting believing things what Jesus told us about, about blessed are the broken. Happier those who are seek after righteousness. Everything is upside down. Because if I start believing differently, if I begin valuing things that the world does not value, well, I find myself in this very awkward position with the world that I'm just different. And that's dangerous living. Now, in this passage, there's both a warning and a blessing. And we'll be focusing our time on just that one verse in verse 3 of Matthew 5. There's a warning and a blessing. Here's the warning. To the person who is strong, to the person who looks good, who is self-sufficient, self-confident, to the person who is independent, altogether, there is a warning for that person. Blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, beware of self-sufficiency. It can get you in trouble. And yeah, we could all say amen to that. But then there is a blessing with the same verse. To the person who is broken, to the person who is imperfect, to the person who is at the end of their rope, who is incapable of living a life abundantly like they want to, there is a blessing, and the blessing is the same verse. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize that as much as they love living their lives, their lives are not adequate. Their lives are not what they wanted it to be. Their lives are less than. Blessed are those who recognize that without God, they can't live that kind of full life. So have you ever gotten to a place in your life where you've hit the bottom and you said, you know, I don't know where to turn from here? That's the place at which God wants us to come to him, the spirit of humility. Uh, a couple of months ago, uh, somebody in our church, somebody in the first service, um, told me of a friend who had a gambling problem. And now, my history is that I was addicted to gambling for three years, and uh, it was hard getting out of that addiction. And so I've had many people in the last 15 years since that all happened that have come to me by phone or in person and said, I need help with this. So I was very happy to meet with this guy. I didn't, I'd never met him before. He was a friend of somebody in our church. And he came to me. Uh, he said he was a, a believer, a Christ follower. So we had that in common. And we started to talk. 
And a couple of times I used the word addiction. I said, well, tell me about your addiction to gambling. He said, well, I, I wouldn't really call it an addiction because um, if I want to, I can stop at any time. And so I asked him the question. I said, well, uh, how many times have you stopped? He said, many. I said, well, then you started again? Yeah, I said, but it's not an addiction? Uh, no, it's not. Okay. So uh, we, we talked about that a little bit. And uh, so he said, yeah, I, I don't really like to use that word because I don't think I'm addicted. I can stop. And I asked him about his family. He said, well, my wife has threatened to leave me. That's why I'm here today talking to you. She said, if I don't go see somebody, I'll leave you. Uh, I'm, I'm just about losing my business. He had a construction business. Uh, losing it. His grown kids were angry at him and were walking away from him. And so I said, at the end of our time together, I said, well, let, let's review. <laughs> I'm terrible. I know. Let's review. So uh, your wife's going to leave you. You're losing your business that you've had for 20 years. Your kids are all mad at you and you're not addicted. Is that what you're telling me? He said, that does kind of sound weird, doesn't it? I said, well, that's weird because it's not true. I said, let me, let me tell you something. I said, let's, and I said this, I said, don't waste my time, okay? Uh, you go away, you think about what we've talked about. If you come to the point where you realize that you are addicted and you have no ability in your own to overcome this, come back and see me. Otherwise, don't bother, okay? And so he left, and believe it or not, a few weeks later, he called up, came back, and when he walked into my office, he just started weeping. And here's what I thought. Now he's ready to get help. He was broken over his own sin. He was broken over his own inability to do the right thing. He recognized that without God, I can do nothing. That's the person that God says, I can help. As we look at this dangerous concept of kingdom living, I notice in that verse three characteristics of a kingdom church. The first characteristic is what I experienced with that, that young man, brokenness. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let me set up a scenario for you. So what precedes chapter 5 in Matthew? Chapter 4, very good. Okay, I was hoping somebody was smart enough to get that. So the Beatitudes are awesome, right? Because Jesus is on a mountainside. There's 5,000 people there. They're fired up. They're ready to hear what Jesus has to say. That's a beautiful scene. But there was something that happened before that scene. Read chapter 4. So chapter 4 starts out with Jesus on the Mount of Temptation being hammered by Satan. So God actually let Satan uh, kind of come to his son Jesus and kind of put him through the ringer. And so Satan was, so he said, Jesus, listen, you got all this power. You're the son of God. You're awesome. You're good looking, you know, all that. He said, he said, how about if I give you rule over the whole earth? So Satan offered him all of these things. And the things that Satan offered him were, uh, you know, like wealth and popularity and food, you know, stuff like that. And, and in fact, when you look at it, there's three categories of things he offered him. And they are categories, lust of the eyes. Lust of the flesh or the heart and the pride of life. Those are the three things. By the way, if you have a catalog of sins in your life, all of those sins will fit into one of those categories. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. So he hammered Jesus all these. Jesus was pretty beat up. Now at this point, he'd given up his glory in heaven. I mean, he's still very man and very God. 
But he was beat up after this. And we read in the Bible that in Matthew 4, 11, these words. Then the devil left him, gave up. Okay, this guy's not going to ever turn, right? The devil left him and angels came and attended him. Now, I've never preached on that passage. That'd be a good one to preach on sometime, Jim. That's an awesome verse. So the devil left him and angels came and attended him. So everything changes. Jesus is getting his, um, his, his, his strength back. He's being filled with the Spirit. He's already been baptized, and things are exciting. He's starting to feel this power. And verse 417, it says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now things start happening in rapid fashion. The disciples are following Jesus. Jesus is going around healing people, casting out demons, doing all kinds of miracles. The religious people are watching because they're, lose, they're, they're afraid they're losing, they're losing some of their power, right? They're losing some of their, their leverage with these people. So they're afraid. The Romans are afraid because, and the Romans are always afraid when the Jews were afraid because they were afraid of an uprising. And everybody saw this happening. This is not good. And this has got to change. And the power of the disciples was growing and they were getting bigger and they were getting a, a, a more strength. And it was kind of like uh, full speed ahead. Uh, the word of God was spread, full court press, two-minute drill, Tom Brady, you know, uh, pushing for a last-minute touchdown. And, and here's what it says in 424 of Matthew. News about him spread all over Syria. And the people brought to him all who were ill, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, and the paralytics, and he healed them. And you say, where's the devil now? Well, he's running and hiding because there's this great power. Momentum is building. The disciples are impassioned. They're pumped up. Jesus, you're the man. Jesus, you're going to lead us from this, this bondage we felt to the Romans. Jesus, you're going to lead us away from religion in the temple. You're going to lead us away from all these rules and everything. We saw what you've done. We've seen the miracles. This is exciting. And we're all excited and we're fired up and we're just ready to go to battle. It looks something like this. Take a look. Oh, come on, doesn't that get you fired up? I, every time I see that movie, I get, I get, you know, I'm ready to paint my face blue and let, let's go to work, let's go to battle, let's go and, you know, defeat Satan and let's go and make the world understand how much God loves them and all of that. And so this is happening and there's 5,000 people there. There's a buzz in the crowd and everybody's excited. What's going to happen? What's Jesus going to do? What's he going to say? It's amazing. And then everybody is quiet and Jesus steps up and he says this. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. And everybody's going, what? Come on. Are you kidding me? Where's the blessed are the strong and the powerful and the swords drawn and the mighty and the everything? Where is that? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are the broken. William Wallace would not be impressed. I mean, come on. Peter drew his sword ready to fight all of the Pharisees to save Jesus. Jesus could have called down 10,000 angels. Judas Iscariot, the zealot, was turned away and overthrown. Satan was being defeated. Everything has changed, Jesus said. Because we don't rule the world by overcoming evil with the sword. I mean, politicians should get to know that. We don't rule the world by overcoming evil with the sword, but with brokenness and humility. Everything has changed. And when you get that, and you start living that way, you become a dangerous Christian. And we become a dangerous church. We have no leverage in the world except the love of Jesus Christ. What I prefer to hear is happier the powerful and the victorious, but instead, happier the broken. Which brings us to the next characteristic of a dangerous kingdom church, and it's this. If you thought brokenness was hard, the next one's even harder. It's poverty. Welcome to a life of poverty. And I know many of you right now are saying, sign me up. You know, I'm ready to go. Uh, actually, this word poor in spirit, it doesn't mean poverty um, in terms of physical sense of poverty. Like you don't have any money or you don't have any possessions. It doesn't mean that. Some of you are going, Whew, you know, I just thought you could ask for all of my money. No, that comes at the end of the service. No, uh, but oh boy, I know. You know, I hope I'm glad it's not that. Well, it's not that, but can I say a word about that? Uh, I've heard some of us say, I wonder why God didn't make me rich because then I could do so many good things for the kingdom. I'll tell you why God didn't make most of us rich because he doesn't trust us. We're not very good with the middle class money we have, right? We think we made it. We think um, somehow that God is not generous, that he's kind of you know, holding back. You know, no. God knows that the few people in the world that are wealthy and Christ followers, that's great. They're generous. But most of us, we're kind of stuck here because uh, God knows we wouldn't do very good if we had a lot of money. We forget God in a nanosecond, right? So let me talk to you about this word, poor in spirit, poverty. The Greek word for poor is tokos. Uh, and it means a begging dependence. A begging dependence. In other words, happy are those who recognize their deep need for God and exhibit that through a begging dependence. God, you're, my only hope is you. I, I can't live life without you. This broken heart, this end of the rope, this my only hope is you kind of a life. That's what it means, tokas, a begging dependence. Now, there's a, there's a picture of that in the Gospels again. In Luke chapter 18, there's this beautiful story. You can read it on your own, verses 9 to 14. A beautiful story. They're in the temple. And it's a worship service. And so just think about it as our church, okay, in a worship service. So up at the front, there's this really well-dressed, good-looking, obviously wealthy, well-educated, high-capacity leader that's standing up in front of the church. And everybody goes, oh, man, that's a, that, that looks like a really together person, right? And that together person is asked to pray. And, and, and so he raises his hands to the heavens, and this is what he prays. I thank God I'm not like robbers or evildoers or adulterers 
Or even like, uh, yeah, that guy, that tax collector in the back of the sanctuary. That was his prayer. He was so thankful that he wasn't these other people that have no standard, they have no morals, they're just nothing. And he says, I'm so glad, God, I'm not that. And then the guy in the back, the tax collector, uh, Jesus says, now that guy also prayed a prayer, but he wasn't up front, he was in the back. And he wasn't standing up with his arms raised, he was falling flat on his face. And this is what he said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. <laughs> Pretty simple, direct, straight to the point prayer. God have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus asked the question, you know he was setting them up all along, right? You know this. Jesus is always setting up the Pharisees. He said, which of those two prayers were better, right? And here's what Jesus said in verse 14. I tell you that this man, pointing to the schlep in the back, right? The guy on his face. This man, rather than this man, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. In that story, Jesus talked about what it means to have a broken heart. It doesn't mean that we go around sad and mopey all the time. It means that we have a firm recognition and acknowledgement that my life is unmanageable without that God-shaped hole in me being filled by the presence of the Spirit. I, I can go through life and I can even have some smiles and do some good things and be okay at some level, but there's always this emptiness inside of me that only God can fill. It's the person who recognizes that. That's the person who is blessed because of their brokenness. There's an old country song that came out years ago. It was called, Anybody Want to Live Forever? And of course, the answer to that is yes. How about a new country song? Anybody want to be broken and impoverished? <laughs> Nobody's going to sing that, except country western fans. You know, they will. But that's the question we're asking, God, what does it mean for me to come before you with humility and a broken heart? Again, it doesn't mean that I'm sad or that I don't have anything good things in life. It means that I recognize that my system of religion, my way of doing things, my way of checking a list of things to make me okay in God's sight doesn't work. And so I come to God humbly and say, Lord Jesus, my only hope is you. Jacob in Genesis 32 had a similar experience in the Old Testament. The Bible says that he wrestled with God. Some say it's an angel. Some say it was a theophanies, which is a, 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 a pre-incarnate existence of the presence of God. It doesn't matter. Somehow, some way, he was wrestling with God. By the way, a little health tip. Don't wrestle with God. You're going to lose, okay? And uh, Jacob had his hip dislocated. It was so severe. It was never uh, repaired. And for the rest of his life, he went through life limping. But here's the good news. Jacob recognized every time he took a step and felt that hip, he knew that God was beside him. We need to recognize that in our own strength, we will fail. But God has promised that like that cat theology, I'll never let go of you. I will never stop loving you. That's broken in spirit. Paul said, when I am weak or broken, then I am strong. Now, dependence on God is not wimpiness. It's not being mealy-mouthed or timid or afraid. It is recognizing and acknowledging that without God, I am hopelessly lost. I cannot save myself. I cannot redeem myself. Lord Jesus, you are my only hope. 
Now, let me, let's dig a little bit deeper into this verse because we're just looking at one verse today. Dig a little bit deeper in that, that phrase, poor in spirit. The common Greek word for poor is peronikos, peronikos. And what that word means is this. It means that I don't have enough food and I don't have enough clothing and I don't have a sufficient place to live. It would be the children that we serve at the San Marcos School, uh, their families, they would be the working poor and the undocumented workers that have really nothing. They're just barely getting enough food. All of the kids at the San Marcos School get breakfast and lunch at school. And for many of those kids, it's the only food they get in the day. So that's poor, okay? I'm reading um, Unbroken uh, uh, by Laura Hillenbrand. And uh, if you know the story of uh, uh, Louis uh, Zamperini, and the movie, by the way, is really good, but the book is amazing. You want to read the book. If you haven't seen the movie, read the book first, then go to see the movie. Anyway, in the book, there, and you've already heard enough to know that they were on this life, they were this raft after their plane crashed for 43 days. And, um, and on the first day, one of the guys, one of the three guys was kind of went nuts, and he ate all of their provisions in one night. So they have no provisions. So they're, they're surviving rainwater and whatever they can scrounge up to eat. And the only thing they can scrounge up to eat are fish. Once in a while, they have some hooks and they get a fish once in a while. But one time, an albatross landed on their raft. And Louis reached up, grabbed it real quick, broke its neck, started pulling the feathers off, and peeling off pieces of flesh to give to the other two guys. Wasn't very palatable, but it was something to eat. That's being poor, right? You don't have much. In fact, you have almost nothing, but you're somehow able to live. You're somehow able to feed yourself. You can rummage through the garbage cans and find something to eat. Okay, that's the word for poor, but the word in the context of Matthew 5.3, the word is a different word than that. The word is tokos, and here's what tokos means. It means you don't even have the ability or the strength to rummage through the trash can. That's poor. Nothing. No fish, no albatross, no rainwater, nothing. My only hope is you, Lord Jesus. Fifteen years ago, actually now 16 years ago, when I confessed my gambling addiction, I um, got to this place to where I was at rock bottom. And I remember one day I got to the place of complete submission because I had no ability. I had stopped gambling a hundred times and started gambling a hundred more times. And I recognized that I had no ability to stop. And finally I said, Lord Jesus, you are my only hope. I was Tokos. You have been Tokos in your lives at different times to where you say, I have nothing. Lord Jesus, rescue me. That's the place at which God can use us the most profoundly. Jim Cimbala was right when he said, God is attracted to weakness. He can't resist those who humbly and honestly admit how desperately they need him. To be poor in spirit is to experience that depth of sadness and sorrow, that depth of poverty in my own strength. There's one last characteristic of a dangerous Christian or a dangerous church and this one sounds a little bit, you can breathe with this one. This is grace, okay? Grace. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, comma, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So how does somebody who is tokos, that doesn't have the ability to fumble through a trash can, that doesn't have the ability to claim an albatross and eat its meat or find a fish or rainwater, how is it possible that a person has none of that ability to do any of that? How does that person find God? They don't. God finds them. God finds them in that place of humility. That guy on his face in the back, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. That's when God finds you and says, I can use you. You're an idiotase, I know. We're all idiotai, I know. I can use you because you are surrendered. You are open, you are welcome. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The, the kingdom of heaven around us, Jesus said. The kingdom of heaven not only here, but the kingdom of heaven in the future is filled with these kinds of people that are poor in spirit. Blessed are they. How does that happen? I'll tell you how it happens. It happens because of grace. You can't earn it. You can't earn the ability to catch an albatross. You can't be good enough to catch a fish. You can't do any of that on your own. But you look up to God and say, God, my only hope is you. Now, the book makes it very clear that Louis Zamperini had a spiritual moment on that raft and said, oh, God, I'll give you my life. You know, once I did. Now, the movie doesn't show that, but the book does, so be sure and read the end of that because Louis recognized that his only hope was the Lord Jesus Christ. And so is yours, and so is mine. A dangerous Christian, a kingdom Christian, is one who recognizes our total dependence on God's grace. So, what is God's grace? I stood before Roseville Covenant Church in, 19, or in 2000. Uh, uh, May of 2000, before we moved out here. And the church asked me to come back and kind of have a service of uh, reconciliation. And so I was very happy to do that. The pastor invited me back. And so in my message, I said, um, I have received justice and I deserved it. Justice for me was being out of the ministry and never really not having the promise that I could ever be a pastor again. I deserved that for my sin. So I experienced justice. What I asked the people at Roseville Covenant Church for was mercy. And mercy is better than justice because mercy is being freed from the punishment. But then further than that, I listen, I need something more than mercy from you. I need grace. I need the fact that in spite of my sin, in spite of how I hurt you, in spite of my brokenness and the terrible things that I did, I need in spite of all that... I need for you to love me again. And after the service, um, we had a communion service. And Sherry and I stood up there at the front of the church and people would come by and they would embrace us. That's grace. Did I deserve that? Of course not. Did I deserve any of that grace from them? Of course not. I didn't deserve any of it. But that's God's grace in action. The young man who took off with his father's wealth, the prodigal son came back, and he didn't deserve anything, but he got a ring on his finger. He got a brand new robe. He got a party with a fatted calf. He had everything, not because he deserved it, but because God lavished his grace upon him. How about you? God wants to lavish his grace on you. You do not deserve it. You don't even have the ability to catch an albatross. You don't even have the ability to catch your own fish, to, to rummage through a garbage can and find enough to eat. But God says in his great love, his great mercy, 
He gave you His grace. Ephesians 5, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. I don't know about you, but when I am broken, when I recognize the depth of my sin, and you know what? And I think you probably would agree with me. I have an enormous capacity to sin. (laughs) I can think of ways to sin that maybe you've never thought of, and so do you. But God comes to me and says, when I recognize that I have nothing, and the Lord says, I grant you my mercy, and beyond that, I grant you my grace, you are my beloved child. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we so, we're so thankful for your grace. Lord, we know we don't deserve it. We know that in our feeble attempts to somehow show you that we're okay, we fail and we fall every single time. But you, by your great love, have lavished us with grace. Lord, may we live into that reality. May we live into that truth. May we not live like people who are broken and lonely and sad, but you pick us up and you give us life and you give us a task to be those who bring the reconciling love of Jesus to the world. And Father, for that, we are truly grateful. Thank you, Father, for your unmerited love for your children, the grace of God. It is amazing. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.